It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Thank you for being in our second service here. And one of the things that's true in a room like this, and you know, I know this uh, to be an empirical truth, everyone in this room, whether you are young or old, white or black, Republican or Democrat, Viking or Packer, skeptic or Christian, we are all hedonistic. Now, as it's defined, we are engaged in the pursuit of personal pleasure, satisfaction, and pure delight. We want it. We're after it. We fundamentally, we we gravitate towards things that we will believe that will bring us joy and, and all the warm fuzzies. So what do we do? We pursue jobs, relationships, dollar amounts, vehicles, purpose, identity, anything that will accomplish that joy and satisfaction. And there can be a warped, sinful version that seeks pleasure for self, or there can be a redeemed heart that seeks pleasure in the things of God, in all things. But one of the nagging questions in the back of our mind, for, I think for both the skeptic and the faithful follower of Christ, is this, if I follow Jesus, will I be happy? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Will my situation improve? Will following Jesus bring change or joy? Will I be satisfied? That's the question. And in many ways, as we continue to consider the book of Joel that we've been going through, it's the exact same question that the southern kingdom Judah was wrestling with themselves. As we covered in chapter 1 and 2, we've seen that these, relig- these religious people in Joel, they have the same, the, the same hang-ups that you and I do. If I follow God, will it be worth it? And, and Judah determined for a time, at least in their life, the answer was no. It's not worth it to follow God. So they would go their own way, chart their own path, and live their own life apart from God and his ways. And what they found, what many of us find, as God brought consequence for Judah's sin, as locusts destroyed their land, as he warned them of a future day that would bring judgment, they found that their own way wasn't what they thought it would be. Even after the passage we considered last week, even though God has told them that it's not too late for a comeback, it's not too late to turn back to God, we read last week. There is grace and forgiveness. There is mercy available to you, he says. God's character is full of steadfast, covenant-keeping, loyal love for his people, even when they fail. And maybe you can relate to that. And that's all very fine and well. Yes, God is loving and he receives. That's what we've been hearing the last couple of weeks. That's all fine. And we might sew that on a pillow. But the nagging question still sits. God, you offer forgiveness and restoration when we turn to you, when we follow you, when we trust you, when we live for you. Yes, restoration, forgiveness. Great. Will I be happy? Or will Judah just be forgiven and live in drudgery and boredom the rest of their life? Well, what about us today? If we turn to you, God, do you simply give us forgiveness and good standing in your eyes through Christ? 
Or is there joy involved? Because maybe I'm not feeling any at this moment. Well, our main idea this morning is simply this. God brings change and joy now and forever. Now, what God promises to Judah, what we wonderfully get to be part of today, is the promise of pure delight. And I don't see anyone jumping and dancing, so maybe we, maybe we need some pure delight this morning. And temperamentally, some of us may be more stoic or dry, and we may struggle. You might look around and realize this of our congregation. We may struggle as a largely white, northern, midwestern congregation. Just so you know, clapping, celebrating, and rejoicing even in the aisles is on the approved list. That's not how we're all wired, is it? And regardless of how you're wired, our lives should be marked by a true inward peace and joy that surpasses circumstances. God doesn't simply call you to moral obligation. He promises us satisfaction and happiness. He promises us himself. Well, read with me in our passage this morning as we consider Judah's change in circumstance. Chapter 2, I'll read verses 18 through 27. We'll have it on the screen as well. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise. For he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice. For the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Oh, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Well, this is God's word, and we see that Joel promises that Judah's future circumstances will change. 
from judgment and gloom that we've been reading in our study now to a satisfaction experienced. I get this directly from verses 18 through 20. And there is a little bit of an implied gap from verses 17 to 18, a gap of time. See, in our passage last week, we saw how God graciously calls his people back to himself. How he works and moves in this world for his glory and for our good. And the prayer of verse 17 left Judah waiting. God, spare us for your glory and name. Prove your promises. So this week, as we look forward with Joel, he continues to describe the future day of the Lord. A future day in which God will act and fulfill the cry for help that we read last week. The plea that they had for a change in relationship. A plea that God would save them from the brokenness of this world and the brokenness even of their own sin. A plea that said, deliver us, O Lord, and defend your name in glory. Joel says that one day things will be different. Things will improve. And in our first work, uh, verse this week, we see that God will act and fulfill the prayer of Judah because he is jealous for his land and has pity on his people. Now, normally, as it relates to how we view the people around us, jealousy and pity are seen as negative characteristics, and certainly they can be. We have no category for a sinless display of jealousy and pity. Because we've all seen someone jealous of someone else's shine and attention. And we've watched others look down on others with superiority complexes. And they have pity on them perhaps. But a perfect, holy zeal and jealousy would be a passion or deep emotion for someone out of love. So one writer tries to use our imperfect marriages to make this point. He says this. As a husband for his wife, so Yahweh feels strongly for his people because he has an exclusive claim in his people and loves them with a great love. He is aflame with a jealous zeal for them. But even our best marriages struggle to have a holy and healthy godlike jealousy, don't they? And it's the same with pity. God, motivated by his very character of steadfast love, he has a a heart of compassion and emotion for his people. My friends, do you know that God is not simply one who acts with sovereign decrees and rescues us in some mechanically cold way? No. He has deep affection for his children. And that's how the the, the scriptures communicate God's feelings toward his covenant children. So I would imagine perhaps Judah and even we ourselves, we often don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. Holy, jealous, eager, protective, zealous, loving of you. Despite your mess. That's what God says of you. That's how God feels about you. I love verse 19 though. Look again. That phrase, the Lord answered and said to his people. You see, Judah, they looked out at a wasteland of their life and their sinful choices. 
And they rejoiced, like we said last week, at the prospect that it wasn't too late. That God would receive them back. So what did they do? They assembled corporately. They reflected individually. They confessed thoroughly. And they prayed for God's glory to be displayed in saving them. And it says here that the Lord answered. God is not distant. Remember I said there's a gap between verse 17 and 18? There's a gap between our desperate pleas for God to work and save us and be glorified in his saving us. And then verse 18 and 19, he answers. Some of us this morning are in that gap. Some of us are waiting. But the Lord answered. God is not distant. He is not unaware. He is not aloof. He is actively working, even right now, even if you can't see it, Judah or Lakewood Church. The Lord is answering and the Lord will answer. So Joel, he looks forward to a future day in which the Lord answers fully. A future day in which God fully and finally confirms his covenant commitment and love. And Joel has said that the day of the Lord is near. God is ready to act and answer his people. In that future day, satisfaction is experienced. So we read that grain, wine, and oil are back. And I think so are the Starbucks lattes. See, God, he wonderfully provides and lavishes his grace. There's a reversal of circumstances. It's not just that he sends some ingredients. The text says, and you will be satisfied. And the prayer of verse 17 will be answered and complete. God will save and satisfy and God's name will be celebrated. As his people are no longer a reproach, no longer a joke or a laughing stock to the world around them. The army of circumstance, the army of locusts that God had sent to judge them for their unfaithfulness. That army in verse 20 will be sent away, removed, and only the foul smell of their destruction will remain. Now, I was actually uh, recently introduced to a song that puts it this way. If it's not good, he's not done. If it's not good, he's not done. And Judah is being promised the satisfaction to come that not simply reverses their recent trauma. It won't simply hold back a judgment they deserve. It will be a full delighting, a pleasure and contentment, a joy that doesn't just make the suffering worth it. It makes the suffering a distant memory. Judah would hear these words in Joel 2 and the future promise itself would create a satisfaction. God, you've made promises to me. Eternal delight awaits. A future joy is coming. That in itself is part of the satisfaction. While they waited, they could smile no matter their circumstance. They would be satisfied, at least in part, knowing that God would be bringing ultimate joy soon. And as it was with Judah, so it is with us, Lakewood. God has promised you a change in circumstance. And maybe it's not happening as fast as you'd like. 
And this does not mean is promise and change of circumstance that God will make you rich, beautiful, and healthy, and you all look like you're all of those things. It means that God is still jealous. God still has pity for his covenant children. He still responds to the desperate prayers of his people. He still sends grain, wine, oil, and Netflix. He still satisfies. He does. He still satisfies. See, like Judah, while we wait for change and circumstance to come, we have an already satisfaction. An already, in part, knowing that he is sovereign and working right now, even if we can't see. And like Judah, we understand that our ultimate satisfaction is eternal. But aren't you glad that you can know it now? Aren't you glad that the scripture says, Joel 2 says, Christ says, that satisfaction is not something that you simply have to say, well, one day it will come. No, he offers it now in Christ. The prophet Jeremiah, he spoke about a future day as well. A future new covenant, a new promised relationship in which God would engage with his people through Christ. And Jeremiah says this, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant, Jeremiah says. Well, many years would pass, and God would bring satisfaction in a person. In a Savior, Jesus. Jesus wonderfully invited and said this in Matthew 11. Sounds very much like Joel 2 and Jeremiah. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Satisfaction. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest and satisfaction for your souls, Jesus says. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The full satisfaction that Judah was promised and longed for is fulfilled in this good Savior. God is so jealous for his people. He's so jealous for you that he sent his son to live and die And to resurrect to bring satisfaction. If you look at your life today. And it's not good. That means he's not done. God is still at work. He is still changing you and this world to bring satisfaction. And you will ultimately know it. Live it. And relish in it fully in eternity one day. So God help us to see. That he satisfies now. And forever. That's the promise of the gospel. Some of you here watching online, you're considering Christianity and you're saying, what do I get? Is it worth it? Will it satisfy? Part of the satisfaction of Christ is a heart and a changed life now. You get just a glimpse, a taste of heaven now in Christ. That's the beauty of the Christian life. But we don't just get to experience satisfaction, we respond to it. We see that satisfaction is expressed in joy. And I see this right in verses 21 through 25. 
And the point here might seem a little redundant, but it's clear that the biblical writers demonstrate that God's people, they don't simply receive current and future, future satisfaction and then just, you know, kind of tip their hat to God and say thanks. There's an expression of satisfaction. So I want to bracket these verses like a sandwich. Uh, you can tell I'm hungry, right? So on one end, you have verses 21 and 22, and on the other, 24 and 25. And, and these bracket two things. First, on the front end, we see the people of the land and even the animals are told not to fear. And that's a common expression, especially in the Old Testament. It occurs about 75 times. So it's been said like this. Don't fear, because in spite of your sins, God has not cast away his covenant people, but he's reversing the effects of the plague of locusts. So don't fear. He is really for you. Bracket number one. On the other end, we see more of the character of God. He is the God who brings cursing and blessing. The one who brings bitterness and sweetness in the life of his people. He provides fullness, verse 24 and 25, and overflowing provision. He'll restore He'll take that army that he brought and get rid of them and cover the loss that ensued. He is the sovereign Lord, as our brother Job said, who gives and takes away. So what is in the middle of these verses, of this sandwich, of these brackets? What's in the middle? What's in the middle of not fearing and gazing upon God's character and blessing? Well, it's verse 23. It's right in the middle. The gladness and the rejoicing of Judah. Now, I don't think, look again at verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. Now, I, I don't think it's an accident that this dry, barren, locust-infested, burnt land is receiving rain as a blessing from God. A people dependent on agriculture, their lives had been destroyed, as we saw in chapter 1. The vine is dry, the fruit is dry, and the joy of man is dried and gone. Here, God in his kindness promises through Joel a future day in which the people of Judah would be rejoicing and glad because dryness is gone. The rain has come. The rain reverses Joel 1. The vine, the fruit, mankind are brought back to life and vitality because the rain. So again, it must be said, this satisfaction in joy is expressed. Rejoice. Be glad. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. When we delight to praise what we enjoy, because the praise does not merely express, but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So, quite simply, we don't sit in satisfaction and say something and do something. Or, or, or rather, we, we don't simply receive satisfaction and say nothing and do nothing. Lewis says and argues that we should respond. So he continues. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. 
It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at a turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it more than a tin can in a ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. So the, the natural question flows from this. Is Judah really satisfied and joyful if they don't express it? God doesn't seem to think so. Verse 23 says that they are to be glad and to rejoice. And surely this might look different for some, but at their core, in their heart, in their disposition and posture, they are expressing delight, pure delight. Now the application for us in Christ is so obvious in this. As we saw in Joel 1.12, Jesus is the fulfillment of dryness and the barrenness of Judah's heart and ours. Jesus is the vine. He produces the fruit and he restores our gladness and joy. So put it this way. Jesus is the fresh, stormy, life-giving rain on the heart that is dry and longing for satisfaction. So as we feel the rain hit our face, as we are encountered with the blessing of Christ and his gospel, we rejoice. My friends, of all people, and again, we may express it uniquely in how God has wired us, but of all people, faithful followers of Christ should express satisfaction and rejoice in life. In our families, in our work, in our schooling, in our chores, and especially in our worship on a Sunday morning, all of life should be marked by the reality of Joel 2. We look at the brackets of God being for us, the fullness and abundant life, and we are glad. Or maybe we dance in the rain or in the aisles. That's fine too. Or as Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice. We dance in the rain. We express satisfaction. Why? Because through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have now received reconciliation, Paul says. So purpose in your hearts this week to rejoice, to express joy, not merely in your circumstances, but in your God and in your identity in him. Well, last in our passage, we see that satisfaction is still to come. Verses 26 and 27. There is an immediate sense of blessing that we get, a little taste of heaven that we get here while we live on this life, in this world. However, Judah, and we are too, they're reminded that the day of the Lord, even though it has been initially cracked open on the cross of Jesus, the contents of Joel's message are even for us still fully and finally known, not until the future. As good or as bad as it is right now, Joel says it gets better. In these verses, Joel points to a day in which Judah, they will eat plenty and be satisfied, just like our meal and membership on July 16th. I hope you're going to bring a lot of food, that's what I'm saying. So they're going to eat full and be satisfied. They're going to praise God's name. And it says in verse 26, they will never again be put to shame. 
Verse 27, God will be in their midst. There will be no competition. It'll be clear that God is God. And we see the repetition. God's people will never again be put to shame. The future language clearly has more in mind than just a strip of land in the Middle East. It has more in mind than just overcoming countries and locusts and the invasions. It has more in mind than just the temporary nature of daily living, the provision of food, and what the reputation of God's people is in the world. So there's two aspects in which we should ask this question. When? When will verse 26 and 27 happen? So the, the first aspect, uh, first, the, this new covenant language that sounds very similar to Jeremiah in verse 27, where Judah knows God and he is in their midst. When is that going to happen? Now, there is a progression in how this is fulfilled. Judah will know God and see him in their midst as their land recovers. As he walks with them in the life they lead as the Jewish people in the southern kingdom. As we've seen time and time again, it's not just at that moment that they know God is in their midst. But it points to a future. A future time to Jesus as well. A future day when a Savior will come, restore hearts, and be in their midst. As we will hear next week from Pastor Dave. That a Savior will be in them because the very Spirit of God will reside in them. And be with Judah in a more intimate way than ever before. But when is knowing God in their midst, when is that fully realized? It's kind of a question that you and I have today, right? The Christian message says that when you believe in Jesus and trust in him, he changes you and he lives in you. And then yet, many of us live day to day feeling as if God is far off. Or we get little glimpses of him being near, but we, went, we wonder, like Judah, when will we fully and finally relish in this? In eternity, in the very presence of Christ, when we and Judah will see him face to face and be like him. But not just the idea of God being in their midst. What about this idea of the removal of shame? When will that happen? And again, I think there's a progression. The shame of Judah will be reversed, at least in the immediate, as their land recovers from the army of locusts. Their immediate shame and regret of personal and corporate sin will begin to see a change as they walk forward knowing that God is with them. But this too points to Christ for the Jewish people, doesn't it? The shame and reproach of their unfaithfulness to God will be taken care of on the cross of Christ. A place where guilt and shame would fall on Jesus in their place. A place where an old life can be left behind. And one day, the ultimate arch of the progression, one day in heaven, in God's presence, in his midst, there is no shame. Judah, as they lived their life, they still had moments of shame and regret. But it will be fully and finally dealt with in eternity. And the same is true for you and I as faithful followers of Christ. There is an already but not yet aspect to verse 26 and 27 for you. You are reaping some of the benefits now that were promised to God's people back then. The scriptures teach that with the coming of Christ, we are recipients of this new covenant language today. If you are here and you are trusting in him, 
If you are imperfectly clinging to him and seeking to follow him all your days, if you are a true Christian, then you already know the blessing and the reality of God in you, for you, with you, and enabling you. He is in your midst. And not only that, the work of Jesus on your behalf means that you already experience not just a death of pride and a death of worship of self, but you experience a death of guilt and shame. Do you know that? And there is a critical difference that I think Joel 2 encourages us to highlight and wrestle with. One writer helpfully sums it up this way. Though guilt and shame are twins... Born in the garden with Adam and Eve only moments apart, they aren't identical, guilt and shame. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to a person. I am bad. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual and shame is contagious. See, as Christians, we often treat these terms as synonymous, guilt and shame. And in our Western culture, we tend to emphasize guilt. We may understand as Christians that our guilt, the wrong things that we've done, that has been taken care of on the cross. Jesus, he died to clear my guilt and pay for my sins. Amen. That's true. However, we generally struggle with shame. And we can be on one extreme or the other when it comes to shame. The world around us and even us at times, we have no shame when we should. We in the world, we fail to blush over sin. But on the other end, for many Christians, we are crippled by shame. Even though I've been declared forgiven, even though the gospel says I've been declared righteous and covered, even though I've been now adopted as God's child as I trust in him, I still feel shame. I still believe I'm bad. I'm scarred by past guilt. I can't get over the feeling that God is not pleased with me, even as a Christian. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that sometimes. So, I know I'm forgiven for my personal and even secret sin as I confess and cling to Jesus. But doesn't shame still haunt the believer. Joel 2 says that God's people will never again be put to shame. We will never again have those internal feelings or the external judgments of others weigh heavy over our soul. When? When will this happen? How is it available to me? Here's how the Apostle Paul answers that question in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you hear that? When is shame removed from Judah and from you? When does that crippling shame go away? When you cling to Christ. 
When you believe what he says about you more than what you believe when you say things about you. No one talks to yourself more than you do. So like Judah, do you look back at past sin and poor choices? In the midst of God calling you to a comeback and to his steadfast love, do you have the nagging question in the back of your mind whether it will be worth it or not? Do you long for satisfaction and joy that you can actually express? Not some fake mechanical thing that you might do on a Sunday, but an authentic, genuine expression of your heart. Do you want that? Do you walk around wishing God would show up in your midst? Do you carry, even as a believer, a heavy feeling of shame and regret? Is this you? It is, isn't it? Lord, this is us. Help. What do we do? We look to Christ. We look to the one who covers our shame. We look to the God who brings change to our hearts and brings us to a deep and lasting joy now and forever. Shame and guilt have been done away with, my friends. Christ has secured for you a deep, lasting joy. Things can be different. So how do we respond to this on a Sunday morning? As we look at Joel 2, as we look at promises of great satisfaction, well, where do we go from here? So I give just three practical applications to take home with you today and to put into practice on your journey of faith this week. And I'll put two of them on the screen. The first is preach the gospel to yourself every day. You may have heard this phrase, you're familiar with it. One of the realities that we constantly wrestle with as Christians is we find ourselves in dry, barren seasons of life, just like Joel, just like Judah. The locusts have come. Life has really turned. And we ask, how did we get here? How are things so dry? How is this relationship so broken? How are these circumstances so unbelievably over my head? God, I'm under the water. The water's not up to here. I'm submerged. How did I get here? And one of the things that the Lord would constantly put before us is our union and identity in Jesus. Because in the moment, if you are preaching the gospel to yourself, if you are constantly communicating who you are, who he is in your great need, the great rescue of Jesus, he will be near and he will satisfy. And just a a personal confession, the, the deep regret of my Christian life has been the inconsistent communicating of the gospel to myself. Because in the moment when I have to choose something, would I be faithful or would I choose my own way? I I still have that nagging question in the back of my mind. I won't be satisfied. If I do the faithful thing, I'll be left wanting. But when I communicate, when we communicate the reality of Jesus, that Jesus said, I am for you. I give my joy, John 15, 11. I've said these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
when you communicate the gospel and remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done, that will aid you in your satisfaction. And the, the second thing is, like, literally, you probably need to dance more. Dance in the rain. Express in the way that God has made you a deep zeal, affection, and personal satisfaction for Christ. When you have these little God moments, like Joel 2, when the rain comes, when you experience refreshing in your life, express, dance, rejoice, because I'm confident that your rejoicing in the Lord, it not only serves your soul well, it serves the soul of those around you. And third, what's a practical way that we can express delight and joy in Jesus as we consider Joel 2? We take communion. Communion. I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward at this time. Communion is a tangible, physical expression of the joy that we have in Jesus. Jesus knew that there would be weekends, maybe perhaps like July 4th weekend, 2023, where we come with a measure of dryness and a lack of satisfaction. Where we come wondering if God is near and powerful and if he cares. And one of the ways that we express a deep satisfaction in Jesus is we take communion. Because while so much of the Christian life can seem theoretical, God has given us an ordinance in which we eat bread, and just as you feel it crunching in your mouth, so real is the work of Christ on your behalf. Oh God, are you real? Are you active? Yes. Yes, and so as you feel the, the juice and the sweetness of it and the moistness of the cup, you're reminded that just as real, more real in a sense, is the blood of Christ that was shed for you. If you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if he is your ultimate satisfaction and you see a dryness in your soul, if you would say, God, I need more satisfaction and joy. I need a tangible reminder. Show me. Come, this meal is for you. Jesus and his kindness, part of our joy, is experienced in communion. And if you are here and you are not a follower of Christ, if you are living in open rebellion as way of lifestyle, if you are not willing to turn to him, then allow this to go by. Allow this to be a moment of reflection for your need of a Savior. There are no perfect people who take communion. There's no perfect people who serve communion. We are deeply flawed men, women, and children who come and say, God, bring me satisfaction. Prove to me your promises. Help me remember what you have done. That's what communion does. So let me pray for us and we'll have these gentlemen serve the elements to us. Father, please do that very thing. Prove yourself. Show us for your glory and for our good. Satisfy our hearts. Satisfy our hearts as we remember now the broken body and the blood spilt of our, uh, the blood spilt of our Savior Jesus.
And we pray in his name. Amen.